Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Well, as promised, I'm going to talk about um, joy tonight. Or another way to think of this is um, seeing the Dharma, the path of practice that we're doing here as a path of happiness. Um, This is um, something that sometimes can be overlooked, as was brought up. Sometimes we can get very serious about practice. And I got into writing about and teaching about joy uh, because, as I said a bit uh, earlier, I got very serious about practice and I lost my joy. So I wanted to talk about that phenomenon and then uh, some principles that I find uh, very supportive from the teachings, from the Buddhist teachings, about seeing this as a path of happiness. First of all, um, like many of you, uh, when I first heard the teachings, I mentioned this a little bit last night, I I had been in a lot of suffering, just internal suffering, and when I heard the teachings, I was really so excited. I found a path that I was looking for. Uh, I, I had one hurdle, actually, to, to, uh, to overcome before I could really commit to my path. And I'm re- uh, thinking of it because I'm, I'm wearing uh, my shirt today. I just happened to pick out this shirt, but this uh, reminded me of it. This is proudly uh, my um, basketball team, the Golden State Warriors. Mm. Champs, <laughs> if one were to compare any of the others. Um, champs, three out of the last four years. Um, and I've always been a real basketball fanatic um, and uh, loved it. From, I was all sports, all sports, baseball, American football, uh, but basketball has always been the one that's, uh, well, since I, yeah, after about, after night, after the Yankees uh, were no, after my idol Mickey Mantle retired, then baseball was gone and basketball has been my main sport. And when I first got into, um, into the Dharma in 1974, um, I was a season ticket holder for the New York team, the New York Knicks, called. That's, 41 games in the regular season plus playoffs. And there I was in my, uh, in that first summer at Naropa uh, with Joseph, and I was so excited about the teachings, but I came in one day wearing my New York Knicks shirt. I'm not that much of a Knicks fan now. And I had this awful I thought I, uh, that I went up to Joseph for the very first time. I couldn't hold myself back. I was very shy, but this time I couldn't hold myself back. And I said, uh, can I talk to you? He said, yes. I said, um, look, I'm a season ticket holder for the New York Knicks. <laughs> My passion. Am I going to go to Madison Square Garden and sit back and say, Nice shot, Frazier. <laughs> Good move, you know. Not care which team was winning. Because <laughs> I said, I'm not ready to sign up for it if that's where this is leading. He gave me the perfect answer. He said, you'll still feel your enthusiasm and passion. You'll probably just get over a loss sooner. <laughs> okay. Sign me up. And then I just dove in. And for the next 10 years, 
I was hooked. I did as much practice, m- many retreats, many long retreats, and, and as I know some people here are in the middle of that, that process. And I had what's called a long honeymoon period where the Dharma was the answer and I'd be early on in my practice saying, yelling, you just have to be mindful, you just have to be mindful. And my friends kind of kept their space for me, okay. It took me a while to get into a softer cell. Uh, but I was just so excited and enthusiastic because, as you can see, I can get very passionate about things, uh, like I did about basketball, and I got passionate about practice. And then at some time, which can happen to people, I got, as I mentioned, very serious about my practice. Dead serious about my practice. Emphasis on the dead part. (laughs) I've got to get enlightened. I've got to be equanimous. And I somehow misinterpreted some teachings uh, to think it wasn't okay, not, not conceptually, but somewhere deep in my being, I kind of, I took on the, the misunderstanding that a, a, a real Buddhist doesn't get excited about things. Again, this is not intellectually, but, but underneath. And I lost my joy. Um, and that was for some time, a number of, of years. I was teaching as well and, and helping people, but there was something that was missing. There was a spark that was naturally me that somehow had gotten dimmed. And after some time, I realized that I... I had lost something and fortunately instead of turning my back on the Dharma and Buddhism I wanted to take a deeper look because I couldn't accept that the Buddha wanted us to go around and being very serious and I looked at the teachings and I said where is the happiness. Of course, there's the happiness of enlightenment. He said, go for the highest happiness. But it couldn't only be about that. And when I looked, I saw some beautiful, inspiring teachings that had not ever quite been presented in the way that touched me um, to awaken that. But as I understood them and made sense for me, uh, I found that there was a way to share these teachings about happiness that, um, that might be helpful not just for me but for others. And, and I wanted to just first share with you this, um, uh, this common misperception uh, by quoting uh, um, some words of Ajahn Sumedho. I, I've quoted him before. Uh, this is the um, the great um, Thai meditation uh, teacher. He's American. He's a Westerner. He's the old, the um, the most senior Western monk from the Ajahn Chah lineage, and he was like Jack Cornfield's big brother, elder brother, and started all the Amaravati um, uh, monasteries around the world. And this is what he says: Sometimes. In Theravada Buddhism, which is the the lineage from the earliest teachings of the Buddha found in Burma, uh, Thailand, Sri Lanka, sometimes in Theravada Buddhism, one gets the impression that you shouldn't enjoy beauty. If you see a beautiful flower, you should contemplate its decay. Or if you see a beautiful woman, you should contemplate her as a rotting corpse. which is actually a contemplation. Now this has a certain value on one level, but it's not a fixed position to take. It's not that we should just feel compelled to reject beauty and dwell on its impermanence and on how it changes to being not so beautiful and then downright repulsive. 
that is a good reflection on anicca, dukkha, and anatta. Remember, I spoke of those three characteristics on impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and the selfless nature of reality. But it can leave the impression that beauty is only to be reflected on in terms of these three characteristics, rather than in terms of the experience of beauty. People who can't see the beauty of the good or the true are really bitter and mean. They live in an ugly realm where there's no rejoicing in beauty and goodness and truth. But once one has true insight, then one enjoys and delights in the beauty and the goodness of things. Because truth, beauty, and goodness delight us. In them we find joy. And when I saw how I had uh, misconstrued some teachings and saw that this was something that many people who I was teaching also had gotten caught in, I was that much more committed to see another way to hold these teachings. Now, I wanted to also share think of it, um, a couple of teachings where you can see how this can be so misunderstood from, uh, from the, the classical teachings. Um, one is the concept um, or the, um, the understanding of the um, attitude called Samvega. S-A-M-V-E-G-A, Samvega in Pali. And this is the definition of Samvega, according to Ajahn, uh, Ajahn uh, Tanisaro. Um, the oppressive sense of shock, dismay, and alienation that comes with realizing the futility and meaninglessness of life as it's normally lived. A chastening sense of one's own complacency and foolishness in having let oneself live so blindly, and an anxious sense of urgency in trying to find a way out of the meaningless cycle. How does that land? This is a very powerful and important understanding, but when you read that, it's easy to to think, oh, life is meaningless. Let's get out of here as quickly as we can. But the operative words in in that definition is um, realizing the futility and meaninglessness of life as it's normally lived. Not the futility and meaninglessness of life. Normally, or typically, we get caught in thinking that more is better and as soon as we can get is, is even better. And we get all of these messages, too, that say, oh, um, this is what's going to make you happy. As I think about it, I'll share with you uh, uh, an exhibit A on this. Some of you have seen this before. This is uh, an ad called The Gold Shivers. Beautiful woman, draped in gold, very happy. <laughs> this is the ad. It's a two-page ad. You can see her in a moment. The gold shivers, that electric excitement, that thrilling warmth. Every new piece of gold jewelry ignites it once again. Nothing makes you feel as good as gold. <laughs> this is the second page. What is the real substance of a new piece of gold jewelry? Emotion, pure and powerful. From the first small shiver of excitement, when a shimmering necklace of gold beads catches a woman's eye, to the great shivers of delight, when the coveted object actually becomes hers. (laughs) Among life's pleasures, count this deeply felt euphoria as unique. The only way to get the gold shivers 
is by getting the gold. <laughs> it's brilliant, isn't it? You might not even care for jewelry, but you look at that and say, I want some of that too. <laughs> or you might say, you can't fool me. That's just Mad Men. Do you have the TV show Mad Men here? You know, that's just advertising trying to do a number on me. I'm, I'm smarter than that. Except it works. <laughs> it works. That's why Coca-Cola will pay millions of dollars for 30 seconds of your attention to see, ah, happiness in a bottle. <laughs> Maybe Coke isn't your thing. But we get these messages and there are lovely, beautiful models, supermodels, who think they're not thin enough, let alone the rest of the population. Or men who think that if they've got a six-pack or they're really rich and powerful, then they've made it, and anything less than they're not quite up to par. Those messages get in. Have you seen them in your own life? So this is happening even in the Buddhist time, but now it's high art and science, how to manipulate the mind. So we get caught in thinking, oh, that's how happiness is to be found. The meaninglessness of life as it's normally lived. Samvega. And then another um, concept, Buddhist concept, another very important concept called Nibbida. N-I-B-B-I-D-A. Nibbida which is, uh, is something that one opens to in the later stages of deep practice. And this is the, the, um, the uh, old translation of Nibbida. One, Nibbida. One should abide in the utter disgust for the aggregates, nibbida, the aggregates, the aggregates being this mind-body process. So in this translation, oh, you should, you should have utter disgust for this body and mind. Now some people, like me, it took me years before I looked in the mirror and didn't wince. And here this is saying, oh yes, you should cultivate utter disgust for the body and the mind. Or for the, yeah, for the body and mind, aggregates. That's a heavy kind of teaching. Or another translation of Nibbida, one can be, should become, uh, one should have revulsion for the aggregates, for this mind-body. But that's just a poor translation of what Nibbida really means. As a beautiful um, essay by Andy Olensky, who's a Buddhist scholar who teaches at the Barry uh, Study Center, Nibbida really means um, one should become disenchanted with regard to the aggregates. That is, not being enchanted by this body and mind. Not being under the spell, saying, oh, that's what will make me happy. And doing all kinds of crazy things, either to uh, beautify so that maybe somebody will, will, uh, will like our appearance, or uh, be so attracted to the packages out there, and when you really see um, and have that understanding and you break the spell, you're not under the spell of enchantment for the package, there's a real freedom that comes from it. But it's easy to understand Nibbida means, oh, I should, I should not like this body and not like this mind. It's not okay 
to appreciate, as Ajahn Sumedho says, the beauty in this world. So these are just a few ways that you can get the teachings can become distorted in one's mind. And they did, as I said, for me. Now, the Buddha was called the happy one. There's so much emphasis on suffering, the Four Noble Truths. There is suffering. There's a cause of suffering. There's an end to suffering. And there's a path leading to the end of suffering. That's a lot of suffering, (laughs) hearing about it. But really, he was talking about the end of suffering is true happiness. And he was called the happy one, not the suffering one. The Dalai Lama, somebody mentioned in, uh, in, one, of the, uh, in one of the groups, I think, uh, the Dalai Lama's beautiful book, The Art of Happiness. And he starts out that book with this line, the purpose of life is to be happy. Just really take that in. The purpose of life is to be happy. Because, as he points out, when we discover true well-being inside and all the goodness inside, then we can express it to the world unobstructedly. If we're going around um, fearful, anxious, depressed, which is just part of life. We all have our periods like that. But if that's what we think we're supposed to be, you know, we're good Buddhists, yes, um, then we miss out on our joy. And that doesn't do anyone any favors We have enough anxious uh, minds and hearts in this world. And so to really discover the well-being and joy within you, this seems to me to be one of the most important ways that we can hold our practice. And the Buddha talked a lot about different kinds of happiness. There's um, piti, which means uh, translated as rapture or bliss. There's sukha, happiness. There's pamoja, gladness. There's different words for contentment and peace. Lots of different lists that he says this is good to cultivate. He doesn't say it's good to cultivate suffering. And so to see what he said about well-being and happiness Uh, This became a a, a real quest of mine. And in it, I discovered uh, three particular teachings that really inspired me that I want to share with you. One is a teaching on um, the wise efforts. You know, wise effort is one of the, the eightfold links in the eightfold path wise effort, wise mindfulness, wise concentration. It was in that uh, five faculties, remember, of faith and effort or energy, mindfulness, concentration, wisdom. Um, wise effort, though, the actual definition of wise effort entails four components. Two of them have to do with what are called unwholesome states, and two with wholesome states. Unwholesome states are states of suffering, contracted states, fear, wanting, attachment, confusion, anger, envy, all of those. You know those? You're familiar with those? They're just part of being human, and it's not that you're bad when you have them, it's just that they're called unwholesome, akusala, when, because they are suffering, and they also lead to more suffering when they are not understood. 
So he says, guard against those unwholesome states from arising. That is, don't put yourself in situations where they're likely to be fanned and, uh, and, and, and stimulated as best you can. And when they arise, which are naturally part of being human, when an unwholesome state arises, I'm sure you've had a lot of opportunity for this, to learn how to overcome them. And that's a very important, profound part of the teaching. When there's fear or sadness or anxiety or wanting or any of those, that's one of the way, things that we've been doing and that's where mindfulness comes in and loving kindness comes in and learning how to overcome them so that they don't overwhelm you. So those are the two wise efforts around unwholesome states. But then he also says there are these beautiful wholesome states, states like kindness, generosity, compassion, peace, equanimity, all of those states of heart that are both um, <coughs> states of well-being in the moment and as they're cultivated increase and lead to more well-being. So he says, the third wise effort, it's a good thing to cultivate these wholesome states, just like we're doing here now. And the fourth wise effort is to maintain and increase a wholesome state when it is here. And that's why I keep on mentioning to you, don't miss it. Because that's the trick, that's the key. And I think I mentioned this before in one of the groups. When you have a wholesome state, the natural response is, oh, cool, I finally got something good. How do I keep it here? And as soon as you try to grab onto it and become attached, it's just turned into an unwholesome state. Because unwholesome states are states of contraction. Wholesome states are states of expansion and opening. So any kind of grasping, unwholesome. Any kind of um, enhancing that opening, expansion, wholesome. So rather than, than trying to hold on to a wholesome state when it's here, to um, just be very present for it. That's how you maintain and strengthen a wholesome state. And that's, that's an art in itself, to appreciate it while it's here without grasping at it. So that's the first principle, to understand wise efforts and to see that it's a good thing to cultivate wholesome states and to see that they're not in the gold shivers. In fact, just for a moment, um, go inside and uh, get in touch with what brings you joy. You can close that if you want. What brings you joy? And remember the last time you were there. Okay, open your eyes. A few comments. What brings you joy? Babies. What is it? Babies. Babies, yes. <laughs> Nature. Nature, beautiful. Yes. What is it? What was that? Cats. Cats. Yeah. Pets. Yes. Dancing. <laughs> Dancing. Friends. What is it? Friends. Friends. Yes. All of those things. Nobody said their jewelry. <laughs> and 
How did you feel? Just go back there once again and think of the the last time you were experiencing whatever you just whatever just came to you. And remember how it felt. Just as you recall, how does it feel inside? Okay? Open your eyes. A few comments. Soft. Soft. Lovely. I'm not there's not one any one answer I'm looking for. What else? Warm. Warm, yeah. Laughter. Laughter. Okay, yes. Sparkling. Sparkling. Sparkling? (laughs) Beautiful. Alive, yes. Satisfaction. Satisfaction, yes, lovely. Anything else? Open. What was it? Open. Open, yes. See, all of those are states of expansion. How we just open. So, the second principle is um, from one little discourse. Oh, and I, I mentioned it in passing here. He said that there is a gladness that's connected with the wholesome state. Like that sparkling feeling. It's a feeling of uplift. And he said that gladness, I think I mentioned it here, that gladness one gains inspiration in the meaning, inspiration in the truth. That gladness uh, is an equipment of mind to disarm all hostility. So he says, notice that gladness. How sweet and delicious. And the more you can tune into that gladness, the more you bring it uh, to life. Rick Hansen, Jane mentioned Rick Hansen, our neuroscience friend. He has a, a, a simple little um, uh, formula that says, and this is from neuroscience, that when you pay attention to a wholesome state, um, it, it uh, deepens it. So he says, when you're feeling well-being, if you can let it land for about 15 seconds and you do that six times in a day I know that's 90 seconds of well-being if you can handle it (laughs) (laughs) and you do that over a two-week period you will notice a shift in your general state of well-being both because you're deepening the neural pathways in the brain and you're starting to be on the lookout for the good and you're shifting that habit like Jane said we have a a a confirmation bias a negative bias often to look for what's wrong that little almond shaped cluster of neurons in your brain called the amygdala that scans the horizon for what can go wrong and it's a good thing it's there except it gets overactive particularly when you're stressed. When you're stressed, your amygdala is firing and you are looking that much more for what's wrong. So this takes some practice to look for what's right. As Thich Nhat Hanh has a, has a, a, a teaching, he, he says, instead of looking for what's wrong, look for what's not wrong. <laughs> and he gives the example, oh, last week I had a toothache. I don't have a toothache now. How wonderful. Mm. So, I'm getting a little hot, so I'm going to turn this just on just a touch more. The lowest one. Yeah, great. So, going for the joy. She's learned. <laughs> so to see what's to see what's uh, good and to really let in that gladness, this is a really skillful thing to do. And then the third teaching that made sense to me is uh, a, a beautiful practice 
um, a beautiful teaching from uh, the, the Pali Canon, where the Buddha says, whatever one frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of their mind. Can you argue with that? Just where your mind naturally lands, as you practice it, that becomes your habit of mind. And so he said, practice good habits so you start to notice all the good. And you cultivate that well-being. In modern neuroscience, the axiom that's used, a famous axiom that says, neurons that fire together, wire together. And that might be one way to think of what we're doing. We're practicing good habits of mind so that we are starting to shift our default setting. So what I decided to do, all of these um, teachings made a lot of sense to me. And I, just taking what I thought the Buddha was saying, cultivating those wholesome states, I thought, okay, if uh, we pick out a number of wholesome states and consciously try to cultivate them and don't miss it when it arises, we start to incline our mind in another direction and we start to frequently think and ponder upon wholesome states. So I took 10 wholesome states from the teachings and saying, oh, these can be practiced both on the cushion and in one's daily life. And the more you practice being there when there's a moment of well-being, that in itself will start to, over time, you do that over time, you start to shift your default. Now, a couple of things, uh, I'll I'll mention just a a few. We're not going to obviously go through all ten, and uh, it's it's a five-month course, and we can't do it in 25 minutes. Um, But I just can give you a little bit of a a taste for some of them. Um, But a couple of things to keep in mind. First of all, the word joy. The word joy, especially, I can just imagine... Uh, in a Finnish winter uh, might not be the, the most natural thing that, uh, that comes to mind. Um, the word joy can be a real stretch for some people. And I know this. Sometimes people think, you know, say, joy, give me a break. I'll take not being miserable. <laughs> and I say, oh, notice when you're not miserable. Okay, that's a start. So there's all kinds of flavors of, the, of these wholesome states. There's joy, uh, a lightness, uh, an, an aliveness, a sparkle. There's contentment, as I said, those different states that the Buddha talked about before. There's ease, there's peace, there's um, uh, connection. So not to get tripped up by the word joy. And actually what I'm talking about is what the Buddha, I think, was talking about with those wholesome states, really a state of well-being inside. It's just not as catchy to say awakening well-being as awakening joy. (laughs) So I say awakening joy. Um, But that's what we're talking about. And for you, whatever words resonate with you. If joy makes you roll your eyes, then use it, uh, figure out what word touches you as far as bringing about well-being. And one more thing that I want to add, uh, that often people have a resistance to, to this, and that is, um, is it okay to have joy and well-being when there's so much suffering in the world. There is a lot of suffering in this world. It's the first noble truth. There is suffering in life. And to pretend that everything is okay, 
oh, we're skipping through a field of daisies, is really um, missing out on reality. And you might think, you know, what is this? Somebody once said, you know, are we just sitting around singing Kumbaya? (laughs) (laughs) I called it the Kumbaya factor. (laughs) But it's important to see that um, that this is not just about feeling uh, feeling the suffering, but that your well-being is really important. And I wanted to read to you a um, a passage from uh, a, a very well-respected historian, uh, American historian named Howard Zinn, who wrote the People's History of the United States. The not whitewashed history, the real history, both the good, the bad, the ugly, all the things that have that make America what it is, and it's not always a pretty picture, but he just told the truth. He also, by the way, happened to be, he, died, he passed away a few years ago, he happened to be John Capitson's father-in-law. Uh, John married his, their, his daughter, Myla. Um, and this is what he what he wrote in a an essay called The Optimism of Uncertainty. He says an optimist isn't necessarily a blithe, slightly sappy whistler in the dark of our time. To be hopeful in bad times is not just foolishly romantic. It is based on the fact that human history is a history not only of cruelty, but also of compassion, sacrifice, courage, kindness. What we choose to emphasize in this complex history will determine our lives. If we see only the worst, it destroys our capacity to do something. But if we remember those times and places, and there are so many, where people have behaved magnificently, this gives us energy to act, and at least the possibility of sending this spinning top of a world in a different direction. So not to think, oh, my my well-being is is not really uh, contributing anything. No, your well-being brings a bit more energy to want to make this a better world. And if you throw in the towel and say, oh, what's the point? We're all doomed. We're going down the tubes. Who benefits from that? And that's where your own well-being becomes something that you can help awaken in others as well. So, With that in mind, I want to um, touch at least a couple of of these wholesome states and and, uh, just uh, explore how it can work. Starting with the very first one, which is the, the key to the whole process, and what the Buddha said is the key to awakening, and that is intention. In the Eightfold Path, it starts with wise or right understanding, seeing, oh, how, where does suffering or happiness lie? And then the second link, excuse me, is having the intention to go for it. Remember when I, when I heard Joseph and I said, I'm going for it. And there's something probably in each of you that has brought you here that has touched you that you can't ignore. So wise intention is the key. And intention is um, is the source of all karma. In, in basic Buddhist teachings, uh, the Buddha has this one line, intending is karma. I tell you, intending through intention, through body, speech, and mind, karma is created. Or as there's a Tibetan teaching, 
everything rests on the tip of one's motivation. And I talked about this the other night when I asked you to think of, of a wholesome act and an unwholesome act. When you're coming from a wholesome place, you're creating happiness in your life. So it starts with intention. But particularly in this um, approach of developing well-being, more specifically, something that not many people consciously consider, the intention to be happy. You might have an intention to be enlightened or an intention to deepen your spiritual path, but really... There is a place in you that yearns for happiness. But often we don't consciously have it in our minds. We often say, oh yes, when, uh, when I meet the right partner, then I'll be happy. When I get the right job, then I'll be happy. When I make enough money or have enough security, then I'll be happy. When I retire, then I'll be happy. But to say, oh, I want to go for happiness right now, or well-being, if that's a better word for you. This is something that often we don't give ourselves. Now, I just want to ask you, does anybody not want to be happier? And if you're one of those contrary people who really is saying, well, I don't want to hold up my hand, but I like being grumpy. <laughs> That's just your way of being happy. <laughs> Whatever turns you on. <laughs> but if you take a look, you'll see that everything you do, don't take my word for it, look for yourself. Everything you do is motivated by some place inside that says, this will make me feel a little better, or this will make me feel a little less bad. And sometimes we can do crazy things thinking, oh, this will make me feel better, and then we say later, what was I thinking? That's true. But the motivation for it is that you truly want to be happy. So this is actually uh, empowering that very wholesome place that's really rooting for you. There's some place in, inside of you that is rooting for your well-being. As misguided as it might be sometimes, getting in touch with that is really the key. And then it's just seeing, oh, where does well-being really lie? Oh, now I can go for it. The power of intention is, is um, enormous. And uh, maybe I'll, I'll read to you, just read uh, uh, one story um, to just uh, illustrate this. Um, we were saying in one of the groups today, it was so beautiful how just a shift of thought, a way of holding experience, makes all the difference in the world. And this is from a book that I love, that I, I recommended, and used to be the the text for um, Awakening Joy before I wrote my book, um, which is now the text, um, <laughs> uh, called How We Choose to Be Happy. And it was uh, written by these two, uh, two people who become friends, Rick Foster and Greg Hicks, who uh, were on a research project for three years to uh, meet as many certifiably happy people as they could. And they'd go to a town and they'd, they'd say, who's the happiest person here? And people would, would say, oh, Shirley, she's pretty happy. She's about the happiest one. And then they'd interview Shirley, are you happy? Yeah, I'm pretty happy. And then they'd say, well, can we speak to your, your uh, co-workers or your relatives, uh, uh, your friends? And, and, if they, and she said, sure. And then they'd, they'd speak to them and they'd all say, yeah, Shirley is really happy. And they'd say, well, why are you so happy? And they distilled nine different choices that all of these people had in common, some of which are in the ten in uh, Awakening Joy. Not all of them, but some of them. But the first one 
is the intention to be happy. And I wanted to read to you one story, lest you think, oh, all of these people just had it good and that's why they're happy. Actually, most of them didn't and discovered happiness on their own. But it started with the choice. And this is Adele's story. In one horrible 24-month period, she says, my life evaporated. I lost everything. My house burned down to the ground, leaving me with nothing. No clothes, photos, furniture, no material reminder of my previous life. During that time, both of my parents died unexpectedly. My husband left me for a younger woman. At the same time, my restaurant went bankrupt. My best friend moved to Seattle. Even the dog died. I had nothing. I was so filled with grief, I thought maybe God was somehow preparing me to die. Everything was gone. Maybe this was some monumental lesson in letting go, and that I should let my life go too. But as my initial shock began to clear, a feeling that I wanted to live outweighed all of my thoughts, all of my thoughts about death. And I began to see there was hope among the ashes. There was one big opportunity here. I had a clean slate. And as long as I had to start over and create a whole new life, I was going to create a happy one. I wanted to feel whole. I was sure that I wanted to embrace everything in life, the good and the bad. I wanted a feeling of contentment and to feel rested and gentle. I wanted to feel unafraid, to feel I could handle anything that came my way. And I wanted to feel this way for the rest of my life. In spite of my grief, I could see that this all added up to happiness for a lifetime. And she said that, and Rick and Greg in the book goes, it took her about five years to process all of that trauma. It wasn't like all of a sudden she said, okay, now I'll be happy. (laughs) No. You have to go through the pain and the sorrow and the hurt. But she was committed to not numb herself, and also to keep on going towards well-being as she had that intention. And they say, she comes into a room and just lights it up. It's not, you can't put that on. She just found that secret by making a commitment to go for it. So, before we go on, I just uh, invite you to close your eyes for a moment. And just imagine more and more inclining your mind towards well-being and developing skills that more and more see all the goodness in life. Not pretending that the, the, the hard isn't there, but just learning more and more to appreciate the good and learn to work skillfully with the heart. And just imagine what it might be like six months, a year from now, as you learn more and more this possibility. Two years, five years from now, just facing in that direction of more well-being. Imagine what it would feel like inside and what it would be like for all those in your life. And if this seems like a good project, see if you can get in touch with the intention, the decision to do your part to bring that about. Let go of the timetable or the report card. Just deciding to do what you can to keep on going in that direction.
to open to as much happiness and well-being in your life. And if you can touch it, that decision is the start of the whole journey. Everything comes from that decision. Okay, you can open your eyes if you like. Mm. And then, once you have that wise intention, right intention, to go for it and to really say, oh, I, I do want this, then everything will, then life will support you in it. Okay, so that's the first step, and I'll just briefly mention the direction this is going. The second step is mindfulness, just what we're doing here right now, because of all the wholesome, of all the mental factors that I, I mentioned, the unwholesome and the wholesome, mindfulness has a unique property. It is the one mental factor that weakens all the unwholesome and strengthens all the wholesome. That's pretty cool, isn't it? Mindfulness weakens when you hold your sadness or your fear with mindfulness. It gives space and it weakens it and doesn't have that power over you little by little. And when you open to joy or love and you apply mindfulness, it strengthens it. So that is the basic tool that then you apply to other practices, other wholesome states. The third wholesome state Jane talked about last night, gratitude, because it opens us up directly. One teacher says it's like we put out our satellite dish when we say thank you instead of oh yeah this is wrong and that's wrong what's wrong with that you know there's no room for the good stuff to come but when you say oh thank you it's like you can receive all the blessings in life the fourth state we've been touching on and I'm sorry we don't really have time to go into it now but we are doing it all the time and that is being willing and learning to open up to the difficult as a path to joy. And this is what the Buddha said, that suffering can lead to faith. Faith can lead to gladness and joy and happiness and contentment and peace all the way to enlightenment. Suffering can be a doorway to well-being and happiness, starting with leading to faith. You say, how could that be? Let me just ask you, how many people have been motivated by their suffering to look for answers in their life that led them to deepening spiritual path? Look around. That's how it works. Because suffering shakes us out of our complacency and says, whoa, what is going on? How can I make sense of this? And so learning how to work with it skillfully and see the lessons that come from our own pain and sorrow, you know, there's so many lessons. That's how you grow. The, the fifth of these wholesome states is integrity. Living a life of alignment with our values. And as there's that harmony inside, it creates a real peace outside and in our life. Mm. Uh, sorry, as there's harmony outside, it creates a peace inside, I should say. And so this is, you know, the Buddha said the foundation for well-being. Mm. Mm. Uh, Mm, I wonder if I should just... Uh... <laughs> so, maybe I'll switch around what I was going to do and we'll have a, a two-part um, talk. We'll leave you in the middle 
and tomorrow have Awakening Joy Part (laughs) 2. But, uh, and I can then go more into how suffering and all of these things uh, lead to uh, to well-being and happiness. Uh, But just to, uh, just to know now that this is a path of happiness. Don't miss it. Happy people are not happy all the time. I don't want to give you that impression. You know, If somebody says, oh yes, I'm happy, and they're happy all the time, don't believe them. They're living in denial, or they have their jaws locked. And they... <laughs> no. Truly, people who've discovered some secret of well-being have sadness and loss and grief and sorrow and all of those things that make us human but they're not overwhelmed by them and they don't miss all the beauty and the goodness and the truth of life as Ajahn Sumedho says that they are they feel all the blessings around them so as you're going through this next day uh, you don't have to skip through daisies just learn to be with whatever is here and see that every moment counts if it's a difficult moment ah how can I deepen my compassion which is one of these ten states how can I deepen my understanding how can I learn to hold this more skillfully and if it's a beautiful moment Stay in touch with your decision if you got in touch with it. I'm wanting to go for well-being. And when it is a moment of well-being, don't miss it. So I'll, I'll just close tonight with a little passage on this that I love from Shanti Deva. Who, is, uh, who wrote The Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, um, which is uh, Dalai Lama's, um, really the Dalai Lama's guidebook. And this is what he says. This is the path that we're on. As a blind person feels upon finding a pearl in a dustbin, so am I amazed by the miracle of consciousness, the miracle of awakening arising in my consciousness. As a blind person feels upon finding a pearl in a dustbin, so am I amazed by the miracle of awakening rising in my consciousness. It is the nectar of immortality that delivers us from death, the treasure that lifts us above poverty into the wealth of giving to life, the tree that gives shade to us when we roam about scorched by life the bridge that takes us across the stormy river of life, the cool moon of compassion that calms our mind when it is agitated, the sun that dispels darkness, the butter made from the milk of kindness by churning it with the Dharma. It is a feast of joy to which all are invited. So let's sit for just a moment.
as a blind person feels upon finding a pearl in a dustbin, so am I amazed by the miracle of awakening rising in my consciousness.